0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, all the good stuff that we like to hear. You know, also taking, you know, he took his company public. So I think that you know it's going to be very interesting to see there the differences between running a private company versus now running a public company. Uh, but in any case, you know, I think that you're all going to find this interview very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. AJ Kochara, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Alejandro. Great to be on. Thank you.
0: So, AJ, so give us a little of a walk through Memory Lane, born in Oakville in Ontario, Canada. So, how was life growing up there?
1: Life growing up there, would, to be frank, was typical suburb upbringing. Uh, you know, look, I come from you a know, family of entrepreneurs that had a family business. You know, personally, I always had a propensity towards STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. So, Always wanted to go into that sort of field, and uh, you know had a passion for chemistry in high school. And uh, sometimes I say in life, you know, sometimes it's your teachers that you remember. Had some great teachers at the time, so that's why I got very interested in it, in part. And decided on the back of that, either I want to become a doctor, actually, (laughs) go down the path of doing health sciences, or do engineering. And so I chose out of that to do chemical engineering, uh, and uh, life evolved from there. But pretty, pretty normal upbringing, but I'd say very entrepreneurially driven. Even at a young age.
0: So let's talk about let's let's talk about the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, drive there. So, what, how, how, how was that experience for you of being able to see your family, you know, the ups and downs of running a business? And I mean, did you know at that point that you wanted eventually to run your own company, or, or did that develop, you know, and it was more clear down the line?
1: Yeah, and everybody's different. I think for me, I personally, I did know. Um, I actually knew. I think even from high school that I eventually wanted to do something primarily on my own. Uh, look, I think. Having been exposed to family business, import, export business, selling to retailers, you know, at the time it was leather products. So, you know, I I saw the ups and downs. I saw at the same time, though, I saw the flexibility that it gave them, but also the pride of owning something and making it happen. I think that was all evident and uh, everything I was observing. So I knew for me, that was something I wanted to do. I think the main gap, of course, you don't want to be an entrepreneur. You want to know, is it something that you actually potentially are passionate about? Hopefully. Uh, but also, is there some sort of key skill, key reason that you're bringing to the table why you should be the one to start that company? I think that's important. Uh, so I didn't know that part. I didn't know obviously at that time, but I always knew that I wanted to start something and build it, even from younger age.
0: And obviously, that ended up happening. And we're going to be talking about that in just a little bit. But uh, you go to Toronto as you were saying, chemical engineering, and then eventually, what happened from there? Because it took you some time to you know to really to really go at it as an entrepreneur. So what needed to happen for you to to know that it was time?
1: Yeah, I always felt that I needed to bring build some real fundamental chops, you know, in terms of either able to be technical, business, learn what's what. Um and I think it takes time. People always say even in a young age and it's often said now hey, find your passion. It's so hard I think to do that. I think what we can more easily do is find your curiosities, right? What are you actually curious about? And so I was always curious about I mentioned chemistry. I was always curious about I think sustainability was important, uh, went to school at a time where that was starting to grow to become a, a theme. Uh, and so, you know, through uh, engineering, chemical engineering, it was interesting, it was right at the cuspy moment, I'd say, where historically that industry was a lot of petrochemicals, so like oil and gas, but it was around the time where there started to be new careers or new areas opening up like environmental engineering, sustainability. So I was interested in that. and. And through, uh, through that program, I actually got a job um, and through meeting some folks at a company named Hatch. So Hatch is a global engineering firm. I ended up working there even while I was in school uh, through the summers. And that uh, firm, they're a global firm based in Canada, but they have divisions of uh, metals mining, energy infrastructure. So a lot of the things I was quite interested in, they did a lot of it. And it's really the engineering aspect of it and consulting on that. So I uh, worked through, through the summers and ended up. Just happenstance sometimes is how these things happen in the metal space. So I was working on nickel projects, copper projects, rare earths. Uh, You know, lithium came in a bit later, which is the theme here. Uh, But I just was interested in how you could take really complicated technical design of these facilities, but how do they work as businesses? Uh, These are mega capital projects, you know, at the time. Very fascinating. So that's what got me interested from there. And so I went to work there full time. and of course, left that eventually start a lifecycle.
0: And obviously, you know the the experience here in this company gave you meeting your other half in business. That's 10. right,
1: very important, right? Very important. I always say
0: I'm 100.
1: I'm a big fan of of two in business. I know, I know many founders that are you know just by themselves, but uh, you know, look, I think you can always make a powerful duo when you find somebody that you have great complementary skills with and frankly, get along with and can help make things happen. So I met Tim uh, at Hatch when I was working there. So the story of this is, was working in, as I mentioned, base metals and was a very uh, complicated group at the time. The title was, I believe, non ferrous off-gas handling. I did not even know what it meant when I joined the group, but really what it is, is uh, pollution control equipment. So these are in like nickel smelters, copper smelters, where they have emissions and you're trying to scrub them and clean them to be suitable for the environment. So that's where I started, but that gave me exposure to those spaces. Now, fast forward, of course, nickel, copper, cobalt, all these materials are very important for EVs. I didn't quite know that at the time, but uh, that's how our world's evolved. Through that, uh, also did some work in lithium. So all this is metallurgy. At the end of the day, it's metallurgical processes to make uh, metals and salts. So lithium came in. Uh, I met Tim on a project. I was doing the project execution planning. He was managing the project. This is a lithium project uh, in Europe. So I became very fascinated because now all of a sudden I can relate to, okay, where is this actually going? What is it going into? In this case, predominantly batteries. That's why these projects were being built. So then it's very interesting because now you can relate technical design with the end market you know use. work through that um, and then made a switch within Hatch to more management consulting. So at Hatch it's a pretty uh, niche uh, focus in that space. It's really just transaction advisory. So now all of a sudden you're taking the skill set of saying, okay, I know how that facility is designed. What if now you're advising a fund or a strategic who's looking to invest or acquire it? They need to do a technical review, DD, to support them on that. But you need to be able to link up technical know-how with economics. What does that mean for the business case? What does that mean for the business? So that was great. That's why I joined that group. I was very interested in that. Tim also had joined the group at the same time. So he told me at the time, he said, hey, Ajay, you really should, this is a recommendation to me. Uh, you know, focus your energy on lithium it's a growth space you're clearly interested in it. I'm doing a lot of this space let's do more together and so that did lead to doing more studies projects, looking at again screening different assets for potential acquisition investment, so lots of work in the lithium space at the time. What happened was and i'll tell us that i'll pause you know we were looking at different gaps we were seeing gaps in any maturing industry there are gaps, so one of the gaps we saw was recycling and when we looked at other mature commodities, lithium's not a commodity, but look at other materials we've worked in, like copper, aluminum, pretty mature recycling uh, supply chains. But in the case of lithium, you know, so new, no one was even there yet. So we were saying, hey, where are the business models? Where are the technology to do this? We didn't see that, and so we said, oh, well, we think we can do something here. Uh, you know, make it more fit for purpose, make it economically viable. So fast forward to twenty sixteen, I had this entrepreneurial bug. I wanted to do something. I didn't know what it was. So this is perfect, you know. We have the skill sets of how to design these technologies, these plants, execute them. Importantly, not just the technology, but all the aspects of executing it. Um, And we think we can work out the business model. So so we said, "Hey, uh, this is very worthwhile." It was two thousand and sixteen at that time, very early electrification days. So yeah, I left Hatch. uh, Tim left around the same time, and we started the company. And that was now seven years ago, almost.
0: That's incredible. And what what do you think? You know, made you guys. So complimentary because you were alluding to it, you know, not only from a business perspective, but then also from a personal perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we worked together a couple of years there. Um, Yeah. Look, I think my propensity, and this is what we discovered as time went on, as an example of how you can, you know, join forces and get two things done in parallel. I mean, I, I definitely get in love and Tim and I started both on the technical side. So that's where I'm rooted. But I love the communication side. I love the external facing aspects, you know, different stakeholder relations. Tim can do that. Absolutely. Tim also is uh, the sort of guy that, you know, back when we were much smaller, and we we're building our first facilities, we have a two phase model where we shed batteries and we refine them. He'd be the guy standing right behind beside the team fixing the shredder. <laughs> it's something that's wrong. So I mean, I'm happy to do that. But maybe I'm not the right person I won't necessarily do it right. So very complementary in terms of our propensity of where we want to focus. So as it's evolved, you know, Tim has kind of the core of the business under his wing, be it the operations, building up the projects, you know, some of the HR aspects that time to that. And I'm very focused on with him, you know, making sure that's all good, and then also the external aspects. So we've discovered how we both have a propensity in different areas. I could see if you were just one person, um, you could definitely do it, um, but there's only so many hours in the day, and uh, two is If it works well, more powerful than one. So I think it's been great.
0: Now, for the people that are listening to really, you know, get it, what ended up being the business model of life cycle? How do you guys make money?
1: Yeah, so we just really simply put, when we looked at the space and when we left Hatch, what we were seeing was like a a lot of waste oriented handling of these batteries. At the time, you can imagine, so lift my battery just so people know. These are like the rechargeable batteries in your smartwatch, all the way to your smartphone, but importantly also in EVs. What we were seeing in the market was more of a waste approach. So we were seeing them treated a little bit like a waste. Maybe even people had to pay at the time to get rid of, this, to get rid of the batteries. And for us, it was like, wow, like we just were helping these clients dig up the stuff from the earth, refine it, and then do all this complicated manufacturing to make these batteries. And then it's not worth anything in life. that doesn't make any sense. So that's a two-part problem. It's the business model and the technology. So what we do, how we ultimately make money, is by extracting the materials from the batteries and then selling those end products. But it's important how you can get back to a high recovery. Uh, importantly, get the lithium. So lithium is a lot of the value in the batteries. When we were looking at the historical technologies, a lot of them are wasting the lithium, just getting nickel-cobalt. So it's really about maximizing your revenue stream from what you recover, being able to sell that, but doing it in an efficient way at a low cost, yet environmentally friendly and also safely. So that really requires fit-for-purpose technology. That took some years to develop, scale up, raise money, uh, you know, get through that very initial phase, and then scale and start to commercialize and build the commercial versions of that.
0: And the I know that the early days, AJ, were not uh, easy, you know, the ups and downs. I mean, what were some of those ups and downs that you guys were dealing with? And then also, how did you guys embrace them to, to keep going?
1: yeah i mean i just to paint the picture you know left hatch uh typical engineering or advisory type schedule very busy and just to put like a real life point on it you know you leave and just on a practical point like your schedule is a void <laughs> what you're going to be doing next week oh, it's open so so you say this is a great idea right great idea like really excited obviously and that's all good but then you leave and it's the shock right especially if you know, you're used to a certain pace. You're used to certain things. So I think at the beginning, at the same time, we knew where we needed to go, in terms of the technical aspects. Like, what did we need to get done to prove this thing out? What was missing was, and what we had to learn was, how do you then backfill that and accompany with it, the business model aspects, how, which then leads into how are you going to raise money and why do you need the money? So look, I think some of the trials tribulations in the beginning, if you rewind to 2016 through like 2019, EVs. Yeah, they were starting to become more mainstream, but still there's a lot of doubt, even at the time. If you remember where Tesla was at, remember even some things they were facing, uh, people were even on EVs are like, uh, okay, yeah, let's see. So you can imagine when you say, oh, yeah, wait, we're going to do recycling <laughs> with my batteries. Like, what are you talking about? Like, isn't that 30 years away or something? And so, you know, at the same time, we knew these things take time and we knew that the whole supply chain is going to scale. And also what people were missing is as you make batteries, it's not perfect. It has a level of scrap. So that took a lot of education, but I remember vividly many meetings where people say, Oh, you're just working on a science project or what are you, what are you doing? How's this going to make money? And I, I get it. Cause on the other side, the early stages, you're trying to prove the concept. You're trying to bring the customers along, show that there's real demand pull for what you're doing and show that the solution that we're trying to validate works. So yeah, for sure, early days there's a lot of a lot more unknowns um, and definitely a lot of doubt. But how you get through it? Look, I think at a very base level, you have to be an optimist. You have to be a realist in terms of what what works, what doesn't. You can't be uh, deluding yourself. Uh, you know, the, not being clear and honest about what the challenges are. But at the same time, you have to have a positive outlook. And I think that's something which both Tim and I have, optimism for the future. And that gives you a base to say, okay, well, we'll make it through this. We'll figure it out. And to have a solutions-oriented mindset to say, okay, well, that's the problem. What are we going to do now? And then you need the persistence to see it through. But it's very emotionally wearing. And that is the life
0: at the beginning of being an entrepreneur. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So, I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So, I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital-raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So I guess for you guys, at what point do you realize you're turning a corner and you guys are going to be all right?
1: I remember in 2020, um, and it was a really odd time, obviously, given COVID, Um, but many different things happening in the world. And I don't know if COVID just reminded us in a quicker, accelerated way that how sub, how fragile our supply chains are. Um, maybe it was, you know, not having people driving around in the pristine air all of a sudden saying, oh, that's, that's quite amazing. Uh, all of a sudden, this amount of focus on environmental technologies, climate change, you know, all of a sudden accelerated very quickly. Because I, I remember 2019 was not like that. And we were definitely out there, you know, trying to pitch what we were doing and where we're going. And overnight, all of a sudden, uh, things changed. Obviously, at the same time, you had, from a macro perspective, liquidity being, you know, pumped into the market all of a sudden. Um, But just certainly from a tone perspective, it changed. And I I think always I come back to, yeah, raising money is a, a big part of it. But what are the customers saying? What do the customers want? And I think the thing that changed all of a sudden was, we were going from having dialogue at a vehicle OEM or battery maker perspective that were kind of one offs or you know, regional or with a regional office. All of a sudden now you were starting to have like a pretty strategic conversation to say, Hey, if we do this right, you can give us your batteries and you can get back your materials. And vice versa, they were starting to say, our customers and have been saying, That's what we want. <laughs> you know, we want to give you batteries, we want the materials back because this is how we're gonna get domestic, sustainable uh lower cost, more resilient supply chain in the long term, so that was a big changing moment because in the day, if the demand's not there, then you can do all everything you want, but the business is not gonna is not gonna thrive so so that was a big aspect and lastly, around that time too was this whole onshoring theme so out of nowhere um from two years before that, like basically no one talking about domestic battery manufacturing. All of a sudden, having this very rapid growth of these gigafactories, started with Tesla, but now many different companies, North America, Europe. So from a very Asia-centric supply chain, purely to one that has a lot of domestic manufacturing, why that's important for recycling is that comes with scrap. So now you actually have a base to say, okay, this is a roadmap for us to build out and scale. So that was a clear catalytic moment in 2020.
0: And and also for capitalizing the business, how was the journey of of raising money prior to the uh, company going public? How much capital did you guys raise prior to taking public?
1: Yeah, so in total, we've raised now you know almost one point three billion. That's to date. Uh, that includes a commitment I'm um, including there from the Department of Energy. That's due to close um, shortly. So so that's overall to the point that we were public. I'd say it was a minority. We've never officially put better number, but it was a minority of that number a uh, significant minority that we had raised. So, you know, what we were doing up until that point, it was mainly the piloting, the validation. And we run this two-phase model where we shred the batteries. Uh, this is what we call our spokes. It's a spoken hub model for reverse logistics. And then the hub where we refine. And so as we iterated, um, one of the things we figured out is, hey, we have to be in the market. We have to be doing something commercial. M- many clean tech companies, climate tech companies, they have this issue, right? You you have to do validation and then you have to build a commercial facility and then also need a bunch of money, <laughs> right? Yeah. And from an investor perspective, it's it's hard because you're saying, well, how am I going to know that that's going to work unless you're already doing something that I can see, okay, you have some traction. So one of our, it was actually one of our board members, 2018 or 19, we had these two technologies and we were trying to do both at once. He actually suggested, hey, like, why don't we purchase out a bit do the spokes you know, in lockstep with customers, their lower capital requirement, gets you in the business, gets some flow in the business, and also builds that feed in advance of the hub. And so that's what we did. And that then colors the capital. So we didn't need a lot of capital before 2020. The thing that was a catalyst then for us to need more capital was the hub, which is a centralized facility, much larger scale, um, scale larger because you want to have those economies of scale and also get all the feed from all the all the spokes. And that then colors the capital needs. So it was basically at that moment where we said, okay, we now need this much larger, slender capital, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to fund that and see that through. And that was what led us to this process of assessing different options, which ultimately ended up with us going
0: public. What was that process like? What was that experience of going public?
1: Yeah, so we, back in... Late 2020, uh, and early 21, we so we made this decision to move forward with the hub. That's what we we knew we needed to do. Why did we do that? Again, that's really how you scale the business. Us, we make the battery grade materials. That's also how we best serve our customers. They want, you know, it's our spokes. We make this intermediate product that goes to the hub. We transform it. The customers ultimately want back the battery grade materials. They want it domestically. So scale, purpose, timing, all line up. So I think that then colors what we need. So we went through a process. We looked in the private markets at the time um, and and many options in the private markets. We also looked at this option around going public. We could, and it wasn't, you know, I'd say now as mainstream, relatively, you know, clean tech, climate tech has been. It wasn't at that point yet. Um, But there was still interest. And we definitely had the ability to raise the money privately. The thing that struck us at the time, and we compared both options alongside each other, it did come down to a cost of capital aspect. It also came down to a time perspective. You know, I've spent a lot of my time. This is the benefit of having two people. Um, a lot of my time at the end of the day, even pre going public, was focused on raising money. I mean, just to make sure that we had what we needed to keep going. So, so having having been through all that time, you kind of take a step back and say, well, hey. Do I have enough time to focus on the business here? And are we getting enough capital uh, at once to be efficient? And so all these things kind of played in. And, you know, we have experience internally with, you know, folks that have been public before. So we were not blind to the pros and cons, obviously, of being public versus staying private. And so in the end, all those things together, uh, we decided to go the public route. Uh, alongside, raised a large sum of capital was five hundred eighty million dollars um, at the time. Uh, went through a process, of course, to get public and eventually list in August of twenty one. Um, I can talk about what's happened since then, but that in itself was quite the process, uh, going through all the filing iterations with the SEC, and it can take a while. So that was uh, that was a journey in twenty twenty
0: one. That's incredible, and obviously, you know, to all those investors, you had to convey a compelling vision. So in that regard, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, AJ, and you wake up in a world where the vision of life cycle is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Yeah, we uh it was actually interesting. There, we uh, one of the awards we won recently was this uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance Pioneer's work. It was interesting one of the articles you wrote about it actually they painted it pretty well. They said imagine it's 20 just choose year 2030, 2040. And you're driving an EV and it's made from majority recycled batteries, recycled battery materials. I think that's a pretty compelling vision of the future. Uh, What do we want? We want to be basically enabling more EVs to get on the road. We want to be enabling cleaner EVs with a lower carbon footprint. And we want to be enabling, eventually, more affordable electric vehicles. And so we can do all that through incorporating recycled materials that can stay domestic, don't have to take round trips around the world, uh, but eventually get back into the end product on en mass at scale. And so I think for me, it doesn't just need to be EVs. It could be energy storage, it could be any application with matters. That's really the definition of success at scale
0: for the company. That's, a, that's exciting for sure, AJ. Now, for the people that are listening to understand, you know, a little bit on the scope and size of Lifecycle, I mean, what, what, what do you feel comfortable sharing in terms of number of employees or anything else?
1: Yeah, we're 450 people. Uh, plus today we have presence in North America, Europe. APAC, APAC is primarily a commercial uh, you know, office but our main assets is are in North America, Europe. We, as I mentioned, run this two-phase model: uh, spoken hub. The spokes shred the batteries. The hub is the refining aspect. So we have in North America four operational spokes commercially. We have one in Ontario, Canada, uh, Rochester, New York, uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So. Very good coverage around the United States and Canada. The whole point is you want to be close to where the batteries are. So minimize that logistics cost from the customer. We don't typically bear that cost, but make it easier for them to make that decision to go to us. Uh, and then we're building this large hub in Rochester, New York. So that, just for a sense of scale, is circa 60 football fields in size, just to help relate for people. Uh, so quite a large facility in terms of the land mass that it occupies will Be the largest uh, new lithium source in the United States, whether from recycling or mining. Uh, and we're doing that in a short period of time because it's recycling, it's, it doesn't need long permitting associated with mining. Also, our recycling type is much easier to permit. We have our permits for that. So, so yeah, so that's North America. And then in Europe, we have three spokes uh, that have been announced or are underway Germany, uh, which will be our flagship facility, our largest uh, in Europe. We have France. On uh, route, as well as Norway. So, very similar strategy. We're following where the batteries are, starting with commercial contracting, build the spokes to build up that base load of feed, make the black mass. And eventually, the strategy would be routed up with, you know, in general, a, a scaled hub. That's basically our region by region strategy, and lots more to come.
0: That's amazing. And uh, obviously, you know, as you're suggesting, you know, and and you are talking through all these different regions. What comes to mind is, is culture. You know, how do you go about culture when you have all these different, you know, offices and different, you know, maybe like, because at the end of the day, you know, the culture is the one that you establish in the, in, the, in, the, in the HQ, in the headquarters, no? and those different, you know, other regions, you know, they have their own different variations of whatever culture you have established in the HQ. So how does that work and how do you guys go about making sure that that's unified and aligned, you know, as much as possible?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, customization with some key themes that are unwavering, right? So that's, that's the key here. We you know, look, I, it's been interesting for Tim and me, we obviously our our roles have developed shifted. But One of the things that we've understood well, is at the end of the day, us and our leadership team set the tone and visible leadership, you know, helping set that culture is really important. It's starting it off, right? You know, we have a set of values, we have a set a uh, vision a mission uh we've continued to iterate that uh also as time has gone on to make sure it's relevant but a lot of the same things remain true whether it be safety being top priority our ability to be agile right that's large amount of the ability that we have to to move efficiently uh, also quite different for a hard tech you know company um so things like that that we ensure are instilled and grained part of the way that we act and hiring you know folks that. We believe embody those values, right? And we're going to be great role models because we also can't be everywhere all at once. So that's one side of it. But at the other side of it, you know, as I just mentioned, we are in all three of those regions. The cultures are very diverse. The cultures are even diverse within, say, the US, different countries in Europe, different regions within those countries, right? You have to know that. And I think the be- the beginning there, which will always serve you well, is leading with empathy. So understanding... You know, where are those folks coming from? What is their way of, of leading themselves, supporting themselves? And, you know, being clear about the things that aren't wavering, like safety. You know, we, we can't compromise on safety. But then understanding how we can tailor our approach to be effective in communicating uh, with those folks locally. And I think that's hopefully what drives a one-team, one-lifecycle mindset.
0: So we were we were talking earlier about, you know, the future, the future that you would envision for this. And um, I want to shift gears here and talk about the past. But being able to talk about the past with with a lens of reflection. So imagine I was to put you into a time machine, AJ. And I bring you back in time. You know, maybe like uh, seven years ago, when you were still working at Hatch. And you were able to grab that younger AJ, that younger Tim. You're able to sit both of them down and you're able to give them one piece of advice before launching the business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: Trust your gut. That would be the advice. Uh, you know, I think judgment comes with experience. And I think judgment is, you know, what, what you can bring to the table a lot. And I think, you know, not to say that you know, everybody makes mistakes, everybody, that's how you grow, that's how you progress. I think some of the moments when I reflect on different, you know, we've obviously, again, we're scaling very well. We're in a great place, very excited about the future. And I think about the moments we've had as we've moved on and ups and the downs. And at times you can, it's very easy as a human to second guess. And of course, you have to do sound first principles analysis, you know, and do the work to get to a conclusion. But what I've learned is. It sometimes is that blank feeling that you get uh, and don't ignore it and, and seek that out when you have it and listen to it as much as you can. Question it if needed, but but I think that would has and continues to serve us well. And I think the moments where I look back and I say, oh, I wish I did something different there, it's probably usually where I didn't quite listen to my gut. And there were other things that were around and happening that drove a certain decision uh, in a different way. All fine, no harm to foul, but uh, definitely something I've taken
0: to heart since. I love it. So, AJ, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: People can reach out at info at lifecycle.com. That's info at licycl um, I think also on the website, there's other ways to to get in touch with us. You know, for folks that are out there wondering also, hey, and also this is for entrepreneurs and others, and they're probably thinking, well, what can I do? Sprider Recycling Batteries. We work with different partners as well. Main focus is B2B. Main focus is on auto batteries and like. but we also do take consumer electronic batteries. There are partners we work with that run these, uh, you know, collection boxes at different stores or areas you can take back. You can look it up. We work with groups like Call to Recycle and other partners like that. But that's a way that everybody, you know, can play a part in uh, electrifying our future.
0: Amazing. So, AJ, Thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an absolute honor to have you with us. Thank you, Andrew. Great pleasure to be on. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts,